You're listening to Advice from Your Advocates, a show where we provide elder law advice to professionals who work with the elderly and their families. Hello, and welcome back for Advice from Your Advocates. This is a monthly or twice monthly podcast that we talk about all the issues related to aging and aging in place and trying to find good care and sometimes talking about dementia care, anything related to aging in the long-term care field. So today I'm really happy to have Melissa Dixon. She is an attorney with Manor Law Group and Melissa, among other things, handles, is in charge of any time we have a family that has a death of a loved one. Now, as you might guess, there are some process and procedure that you should follow after the death of a loved one. So Melissa is here to talk to us about that. Melissa is also a certified dementia practitioner and an accredited attorney through the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of General Counsel, meaning she can help veterans with their veterans benefits. So welcome, Melissa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So as I mentioned, Melissa handles all of the issues in addition to many other things. She's in charge of any issue where a family member has a loved one that has died and making sure we follow the proper process for that. So the first thing I want to talk to you about is the very common thing that everybody kind of assumes is the case is what we see in the movies where there's a reading of the will. Very first thing we ever see. Is there ever a reading of the will? So that is a common misconception, but no, there is not an official reading of the will. It's funny. I see so many movies and it's always there. And I think it really creates an expectation when people come into the office that when they leave, they're going to get a check or they're going to get the keys to the to the uh, 1974 Camaro or whatever it is. And uh, that's just not a realistic thing. That's not going to happen at that time. There's sometimes that we can take a small asset and make sure that it gets distributed quicker. But really, we try to make sure that we're following all the rules and making sure that, you know, everybody, nobody has future liability or nobody's going to have problems with this in the future. So if there's not a reading of the will, then uh, what does happen? What is some of the first things that a family should do once they have to deal with the, uh, you know, what, what do we do? So the important thing to note is that administering the estate is a process. And mm-hmm. so I encourage people to take some time, grieve, you know, spend time with your family, But really, the urgent things from the standpoint of a successor trustee or a personal representative is to protect and preserve the assets from date of death forward. So largely, that is a house and a car and things of that sort. So um, it would be important to make sure there's insurance coverage on the house and the car, make sure that they're secure. If there is a trust, make sure that the trust is listed as an additional insured on the policy. And... um, then they should call a qualified attorney to help them with the next steps. Yeah, very good. And so I think sometimes folks just assume that it's all pretty much straightforward, simple. The key on this is that um, if you're listed as the executor, which sometimes we call the personal representative or the trustee, successor trustee, if you're listed as the executor, you're the one with your neck on the chopping block here. And so the family, the rest of your siblings, the rest of the bears might not care so much about it because they're just like, just give me the money, just distribute it. There doesn't need, you don't need a lawyer. We don't need to go through all of this. 
Well, the, they're not going to be liable. They're not going to be on the hook for it. But if you're, you know, I think most of us, if if our parents were to make us the executor, we feel a bit honored. We feel, oh, well, they mom and dad trust me. Um, that's great. Um, a lot of times mom and dad and you don't realize you're making sure that now you're going to be acting as a fiduciary and you have a responsibility. And if things aren't done right, sometimes even from the standpoint of just paperwork, you can be liable. Uh, you can be liable for a long time longer. Now, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying it's important to seek good legal advice and follow through with that legal advice. And it's not going to come out of your pocket per se, because it should come off the estate. And that's possibly why some of the family members are saying, oh, you don't need a lawyer because everybody's everybody's share will get a little bit smaller. But we try to keep our fees really, you know, very, very reasonable. And it's going to be, a, you know, a, a drop in the bucket typically compared to what the distribution is. And they probably won't notice it. And it's just important for the person who's in charge not to be held liable for many years, even if there turns out to be no additional liability, knowing that's hanging over your head for several years can be very problematic. So I agree with everything Melissa said. I did want to highlight one issue with that. And she said this, I just wanted to put emphasis on it. And that is many people have a trust, a revocable living trust. It's a very popular option. It's something that we recommend for a lot of folks. And if you have a trust, one of the things that you're going to want to make sure after the parents die is that the homeowner's insurance is listed as an additional insured on the house because mom and dad are the insured. And if they're deceased, then they're not an insurable interest because they're deceased. So we want to make sure the trust is listed as an additional insured. Mom and dad should have done that during their lifetime. But do we know that they did that? Do we know that they called up the insurance company and listed them as an additional insured? It's very rare that people actually follow through with that process. We try to help people with that process, but a lot of times it's not done either, you know, if it's done at a different law office or they just didn't follow through on our instructions. And so it's really important because there was a case out of, I think it was Wisconsin, was it, I think, or Iowa, somewhere over there in the Midwest. And the idea was that a uh, house burned down about six days after somebody died. And they and it was a ladybird deed, not even a trust in that case. And the insurance company was able to get away with not paying on the, the uh, house, even though it burned down, because they weren't notified of it. They weren't notified or listed the trust as an additional insured. In that case, it was a ladybird deed. But So people think, oh, ladybird deed, trust, I'm all set. Yes, there's some follow-up. It's very simple. It's a phone call. It might be a signature, those types of things, maybe an online form, but just make sure the trust is listed as an additional insured if the house is in a trust. <clears throat> so, Melissa, I know this is something that you and I talk about a lot, and you've mentioned it to me, that a lot of families are very eager to start distributing the assets, which makes sense. I mean, mom and dad don't need them anymore. They've passed away. Let's go ahead and fill out those beneficiary designations. Let's distribute the house, whatever it is. And so is there a reason to wait and not immediately start distributing everything? Yes, there are a number of reasons to wait. Uh, one of them being expenses. So the family has a hard time sometimes you know, forecasting what kind of expenses are going to come in. Uh, there's bills they're not aware of. Uh, tax returns are a big one. So yeah. this time of year, 
sometimes, it, you know, they very clearly recall, yes, I need to take care of mom or dad's taxes from last year, but they forget that there's going to be another tax period next year. So there could be liability, there could be tax filing fees. So from the standpoint of, of the expenses, there's also just a lot of things with the assets and it takes a while to discover those things. Sometimes they think there's a policy, but it's already been cashed in five years ago. And so mm -hmm. to make decisions based off of what you think you know at that moment is bound to come back later and bite you. So I always recommend you know waiting for the full picture to come together because once the money is distributed, there's no getting it back if you need it for something. That, again, it goes right back to the person that's been uh, had the honor of being right. put in charge that you could be on the hook. What if it's a copay? What if it's a copay at a hospital stay? What if it's the final illness copay? I don't know about you, but I know when I go to the doctor or, you know, if somebody in my family has been to the hospital, sometimes it's many weeks before we get that bill. Sometimes it's even longer. I've had clients where it'd been six months and they got the bill at six months later. It's, you know, it's sometimes medical billing is slow because, you know, they, they go through the process of billing the insurance, billing Medicare maybe, and then, you know, they don't know what a lot of doctors would know, but sometimes they, the, there's just not clarity as far as what is the, the patient's contribution or if it was mom or dad, what was mom or dad's contribution or copay. And sometimes it takes a long time for them to send you a bill. And uh, who's going to be on the hook? It's the one that mom and dad put in charge if you've already distributed the asset. So it's really important to kind of take a step back and um, there's also, Melissa's going to talk about this in a second. This is the really key. This is the key thing I want everybody to take away from this. Melissa's going to talk about it in a second. You can put a time limit on coming forward with those outstanding bills. Melissa's going to teach you how to do that in just a second here. But the idea is if we follow the process, we'll put a limit. And after a very short period of time, no medical bills can come in and have any legal you know, enforceability, no bills from anybody else. We can shut down liability after a very short period of time just by following a relatively straightforward process. Now, we're going to talk about how the lawyer can help you with that process, but I just want to make that key point. You don't have to, if you're the executor, you don't have to have this cloud hanging over your head because there's a process which shuts this down and makes it where after a short period of time, you have no liability, even if they get a bill later. We just say, hey, you should have brought this bill to our attention sooner. And But that only works if you follow the process. So one of the things that we hear often, and we do, obviously, in Manor Law Group, we do estate planning, wills and trusts and things like that. We do the long-term care planning and dementia planning and things like that. So today we're talking about what happens after someone dies and the estate administration planning. But some people think, and it's true in some cases, that you have to go through probate after somebody passes away. So is it required to go to probate when someone dies? No. So that is another common misconception. It is not always required. It is a legal analysis, though, to look into the person's individual situation and look at the assets, how are they titled, and make that determination if a probate is needed. So no, it's it's not needed in every situation. And one of the things I want to add to that is that analysis is something that's very valuable. We, at our office, will do that analysis for free for our clients where we did their estate planning. It's something that we've done for many years. So if we did a trust for mom and dad, 
we will do that analysis for free and we'll give you some guidelines and rules as to what to do next. And you can ask for our help to do it or you can do it yourself, but we at least want to point in the right direction. So for those that we did the estate planning, particularly specifically if we did a trust for them, we're going to have that first meeting with the executor at no cost to you so that we can do that analysis is everything, what, what is the process of transferring everything? Because if you make the wrong decision and you don't make the analysis right, it could come back and bite you again. So I'm going to give you a quick example. The car. Often the car, uh, we can go down to the Secretary of State and transfer the car. But if you do that and it turns out that there are some probate assets, then you're in trouble because you shouldn't have done that at the Secretary of State. But if you don't know that, if you haven't taken the analysis and taken a step back and say, okay, I need the lawyers to come in and just do an analysis. What needs to be done here before we start distributing assets or going to the Secretary of State or filling out beneficiary designations and things like that? So it is really critical. And for, like I say, for our clients where they were a client of ours and we drafted we prepared the trust for them. We had prepared their estate planning for them. We will do that initial step at no cost to you. We're happy to help all the others too. There's a small cost for us to do that analysis if, if we did not draft the legal documents, okay? But what are the steps? Talk about the steps when they don't have to go through probate. In a minute, then I'll kind of ask you what you have to add to that if there is a probate. So what are the steps when they don't have to go through probate? So just kind of a highlight of the of the main ones, we start out with making sure that the successor trustee has access to everything that they need to get access to, um, giving them the appropriate documentation, tax IDs, and things of that sort that they need to be able to go in and start accessing assets. But from there, we want to get that clock started right away that Bob had mentioned earlier with our unknown creditors. So we will go through the process of dealing with creditors that we know about. But we also start that clock for creditors that we don't know about by publishing a notice in the newspaper in the county where the decedent lived. And so we put them on notice. They have four months to make a claim. They send it to our office. And if they don't make the claim in that four months, they're barred. So that cloud can move out of the way and then we can continue. But while we're waiting for that four month clock to run, we're gathering up the assets, we're making sure we're giving them the appropriate date of death value. We're looking into the trust, making sure the trust uh, benefits are being given to the beneficiaries. So our trusts have benefits like tax savings or some creditor protections. We're making sure that all the beneficiaries are aware of those things and that those things are being taken advantage of. So then we start, you know, we're keeping records. At the end, the part that everybody's excited about, we do the accounting and reporting and distribution. So those are, you know, the high points, I would say. Yeah, I think that, um, and again, I, this may self, sound like we're being, uh, you know, self-serving here, but the reality is I think it's really helpful to the executor to have a lawyer's assistance, our assistance or another lawyer's assistance through this process. And what Melissa just went through isn't, intuitive necessarily. So when you say there has to be a publication notice, is it typically published in the big local newspaper? Not uh, typically. Not typically. It doesn't have to be, no. It can be, but it's rare and it probably they're not really going to know how to handle it. Also, can we just say, hey, this person died? And, you know, in other words, is, is there will it meet the requirements to limit the liability if they don't use the right words in the app? No. And so actually I had a recent situation where a client insisted and, and they were they were very, very smart, very 
great at a lot of things. So they said, I think I can do this. I think I can figure this out. And they looked into the newspaper and tried to copy something else that someone had done and it was still incorrect. Yeah. So what, what we're getting at is to limit your liability. And I want to highlight this. I know Melissa said this, but I want to highlight it. The, the distinction between doing following the rules, following the process and not following is having a four month statute of limitations that if people don't come forward, those creditors don't come forward within four months versus a potentially six year statute of limitations where they could come forward up to six years later and legally enforce that debt. But if we follow the process and use the right words and, and publish it in the right place and, and, and do all of those things, we can limit that liability to four months. That's huge for not having that cloud over your head. Do some people not do it? Some people not follow that and they just want to take the risk and they say, eh, I don't think there'll be anybody else coming forward and asking for money. I think probably a lot of people go with that route. But what I'll tell you is that it's, first of all, not that expensive. It's not coming out of your pocket. It's coming out of the estate as a whole. So if you're dividing it up among your siblings, for example. And the, the final part of that is that it's really important that we we follow that precise process. Otherwise, we might not get that four-month statute of limitations. If you put it in the wrong place, if you publish it wrong, if you don't use the right words, if you don't follow the other instructions. I wanted to mention one thing, and the law in Michigan says, and this is not saying what lawyers should do. This is saying what the estate should do. And if you're the executor, it says what you shall, the, the statute, and let's actually point this out to me, it says you shall do these things. Not, hey, do it if you feel like it. Do it if you want to limit your liability to four months. It says you shall. Now, are you going to get in trouble if you don't? Only if there's some liability there that you you know that somebody thinks they're owed money by mom or dad. But the statute, if you want to follow the law and be very you know precise in following the law, it says you shall do these things, not maybe think about doing these things like publication of the notice and, and the rest of the things. So I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole, but what would be the additional things that need to be done if, in fact, we have to go through what's called a decedent's estate in probate? If we did have to go through a probate, yeah. then uh, we would have to get approval from, we'd have to get letters of authority, or this is the legal authority from the probate court to access assets. So right. that's an entire other process separate from administering the trust estate. Um, so we would have to fill out a number of court pleadings and take it to court and get the authority from the court to access those things. It's a fair amount of extra paperwork. Um, I always tell people, if all things were equal, I'd probably stay out of probate court if I could. But it's not the horror story. Typically, sometimes it is a horror story. Honestly, we both have examples of horror stories in probate court. But typically, it's not the horror, horror story that people imagine it is. It is a lot of extra paperwork and red tape. It is not court hearings typically. Now there could be if there's fights and disputes, and if even the you know the attorney general could come in if they felt like it, a, a creditor can come in if they felt like it. So there could be hearings and where you have to go to court. But the vast majority of the cases that we work on, even if we have to go through probate, there's never an actual hearing where we have to show up in court and be sworn in and give testimony or anything like that. It's all done by paperwork the vast majority of the time. That's right. So how long does this process typically take? 
On average, um, I tell our families it's they should expect six months to a year. I like that number. And the reason I like that number is because can it be done in less than that? Maybe and great. But if you set out the expectation for your family, I'm going to tell you, this is my personal experience with this. My parents died both over the last few years here. So typically we don't, there's not a lot to administer after the death of the first parent. It's after the second parent. Um, and I'm a lawyer. We set up everything very well. It's been about a year and now we're, well, yeah, it is a year now, I guess. It's a year and we're now getting ready to distribute. Now, well, part of my rationale for that is because I am going to insist that we follow the proper process. And, you know, some of it is just the logistics of it. Some of it is dealing with life insurance companies. Some of it is dealing with financial companies. Most people never think of this. But we had to get, in my parents' case, and in many cases, something called a medallion signature. This is not like your typical notary. You can come to our office, we'll give you a notary. We can't typically get you a medallion signature. And so some of these things are just time-consuming. And so, and you really don't want to skimp and not follow the rules. And so, you know, if you can get it done, a lot of times it is less than a year. It can be, you know, but if you lay that kind of foundation expectation out for your family, if you're the executor, I prefer you to lay that out. And then if they get it at six months or they get it at seven months, they're happy as opposed to saying, oh boy, you know, it's been two weeks. Where's my money? And that's what, don't you think that's what most families expect? They really do. You're the executor and your brother's calling up yelling at you saying, you're not doing this. You're doing it wrong. You're clearly doing it wrong because it's been a month and I don't have my Corvette yet. <laughs> you know, And that's, you know, and specifically for a Corvette, or a car or something like that, usually we're going to want to put a priority on that because we just don't want to sit in there for six months or whatever. But so that's not a great example, but cash would be a better example, for, for, for example. Um, who has the most to lose, Melissa? Who has the most to lose if we don't follow the process of administering the trust? The trustee, as you were saying earlier. So the, the families often come together and we encourage them to do that. But the siblings that are sitting there, or the spouses or other people, it is not them. It is the trustee. And by taking an action and proceeding to act as trustee, they've they've taken on that liability. And what I'll, I'll tell you is we have um, sort of two, um, two scenarios that we set up in our office. If everything is expected that everybody's going to get along and we're not going to be fighting about it, the trustee, the person that mom and dad put in charge, they have the option of having other family members come to the meeting with us. We encourage that if we don't think there's going to be a dispute. And that way, then we can kind of set the expectations for the family so that it's not as though they're hearing it from you. I can imagine, you know, I'm the youngest of six. And so if I'm trying to tell my older siblings and they're just like, yeah, you know, everybody else thinks of me as, you know, okay, you know, he's an attorney. He probably knows what he's doing to, to my family. I'm just Bobby, you know? And so, you know, it's the same thing. If your siblings say, you're saying it could take six months to a year. Uh, I, I don't believe that. I think you're stalling. I don't know if I trust you, whatever. And the idea is that they can hear it from the lawyer. Now, to be clear, we do not represent the rest of the family. We represent the person who's the executor, the person that's a trustee that's in charge in their capacity as the person in charge, not in their capacity as being the beneficiary. We can't favor you over your siblings 
as a beneficiary, what we do is we represent you in your capacity of your job that you have to do. And that's why we say, if we think there's going to be a dispute and a big fight and everybody's going to be yelling at each other, we don't invite the other family members. Why? Because I don't want them to have an expectation that I'm their lawyer or that Melissa's their lawyer. Okay. It's really important. If we think there's a fight, we don't want to set any expectation because it might mean that uh, that they could exclude us and we wouldn't be able to help you. If we bring a contested party in and they say, I thought I was represented by them, then there's a possibility. It's not always, but there's a possibility. We might have to step aside and say, you're going to have to go use another attorney because there's a conflict that's been created here. Now, we try to set out those ground rules right from the beginning. So even when we have the whole family in there, we'll kind of lay it out and say, hey, let everybody know we're only representing this person and we're representing them only in their capacity as the one that's uh, in charge and only in that capacity as the job that they're doing. And we don't represent any of your interests individually. And um, so then if it turns out there's a conflict later, we're not conflicted out. But that's why we try to avoid, if we know everybody's going to be hiring lawyers, don't bring them into that first meeting because it may make it so that we can't help you in the future. A um, few issues that come up from time to time, and the, the one that I think is a big one that people kind of forget about is the final tax returns. So tell us a little bit about that. Especially this time of year. Like I said, sometimes they think about last year because it's January or February or March, but um, and they do think about filing the person's individual return. They often forget that there may be one for the trust and there may be one for multiple years. So it depends on how that process unfolds. Um, how quickly we're able to get things liquidated. Like you said, if we're dealing with a difficult company or something, it might take a little longer. But um, we do give lots of reminders and guidance through that process to file the final taxes, to make sure they're getting good advice. And we do try to administer as much of the uh, estate as possible. And if we need to just hold back some money to deal with that next year or whatever the case may be, we can do that too. So we try not to hold up the vast bulk of distribution of the estate for the taxes, but we want to hold back a little bit in case we're surprised by the taxes. Why would we be surprised by the taxes? There could be a million reasons, but one of them is we actually don't know what next year's tax law will be. They could change the law between now and then. They could change the, the tax percentage. They could get rid of some exemptions. They could do, there's any number of things. This happens. So that's why if you die in March, we can't file your tax return, their final tax return until the following February. We're not allowed to file a tax return. So you die in March, we'd like, okay, let's just wrap everything up in September. Nope, we can't because we have to wait until we're allowed to file the tax return. So if you died in March of 2023, we have to wait February of 2024 before we can file that tax return. And I like the fact that you pointed out that there's likely gonna be two, two tax returns, one for the estate, and one for your parents' final tax return. So anything, any income that was earned uh, or, or rebates or anything like that that we had up to the date of death and any interest or anything else that we have to report after the date of death. Those are two separate tax returns, sometimes three because it could be two tax years for the income. Right. Um, something that that is gets overlooked a lot, and I'll I have some comments on this. I'll add to Melissa's, but four hundred one k's, IRAs, qualified annuities, any kind of retirement assets. So, what? Why are those special, and why do we have to think uh, extra about those? 
So extra caution to, you know, we always send out notices to our families and our trustees telling them, don't make any distributions, don't make any changes. Because there's a lot of times when I sit down with trustees, they've already met with their advisor, they've cashed in 401ks or IRAs already, where they've already rolled them over based on the advice of that individual. And it has costed them a lot of money in taxes. So a lot more money has gone into the pocket of the government as opposed to their own pocket, because they they didn't get individual advice mm-hmm. for their particular situation. So, you know, there's not a one size fits all piece of advice. And and that's why I recommend they wait till they come in and meet with us because we can look into the trust and see what what benefits are in the trust for them concerning those accounts. And also, is it the best advice to just roll it over right away? Very good. And so there's one key exception to that, of course. And the key exception is if mom or dad, so if, if mom or dad die near the end of the year, and they have not taken out their required minimum distribution for that year, we're going to want to make sure we take that required minimum distribution for that year so we don't get penalized for not taking an RMD or required minimum distribution. So we always still want to double check before December 31st that we've taken that required minimum distribution. But other than that, I'd say pause for a second. I have a friend um, that I've known for 20 some years and uh, her father died and she called me well after the fact. And the idea of what happened was she went in because dad had an IRA and it was an IRA um, that was with the financial advisor associated with the bank. Nothing wrong with that. Dad was happy with that. I'm happy with that. Fine. That's perfectly good. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm never going to tell you where to invest your money. Okay. But what happened was dad's financial advisor said, okay, this is how we have to handle this. And you must sign this paperwork to settle dad's estate. And he was very insistent that we do this right away, immediately. There was so much urgency on his part. Well, my friend lives in another state. She doesn't live in Michigan. Her dad died in Michigan, but my friend lives in another state. And so what was happening is he was trying to roll over dad's IRA as an inheritance on a beneficiary designation to her. And he had already set up accounts in her name. He was ready to move the money over to her. And then he would become her financial advisor. Well, that's not very practical. First of all, she's done no scrutiny to see whether she wants him as a financial advisor, whether she has a good rapport with him, whether she likes his advice, whether she didn't, he didn't ask her about any risk tolerance. He said, oh, we'll do all of that later. But, and she didn't even realize that that's what he was doing. He was saying, this is what's necessary to settle the estate. Well, that's not accurate. We can. She could do it on her own. She can use her own financial advisor. She can use a new financial advisor. But what the financial advisor wants, and there's, I'm not trying to criticize the financial advisor, but he was eager to keep that money under, you know, his management and set up accounts for her so that she could then, and, and without making giving any tax advice, really thinking about the taxes at all, and really rushing into that, and so. When she called me, I called up the advisor and said, you know what, just freeze everything. Stop it. Don't do this. We're going to, maybe we'll do this. Maybe we won't, but we're going to look at it. One of the things I had talked about with her, and this is something that Melissa and I often talk to families about, is you have college-age kids, um, and you, my friend, was in a fairly high tax bracket. And I said, you know, when you get this money, you're going to be paying in- in- income, not at dad's tax bracket, but your tax bracket, the daughter's tax bracket. And I said, well, what 
tax bracket is your kid are your kids in? He said, zero. They don't have in a tax bracket. They might have like a summer job or they make minimum wage or something, but they're in college. And I said, you know, it's possible that we could take some of the money and, and pay taxes, but pay it at your kid's tax bracket. And not only is it possible to pay it at your kid's tax bracket, we could do it over a longer period of time, like a 10-year period of time. And we can do it for you, but you're still going to be paying the higher tax bracket because you're in a higher tax bracket. We can do it for the kids. And we know at least now they're in a very low tax bracket, if any. And then over time, since they're young and just starting out in their careers, they'll still, still probably be in a lower tax bracket. And she said, that's exactly what I want to do. Why didn't my advisor tell me about it? Well, he was just trying to get make sure that he was going to get that account. And um, the reality is, if we had followed through on that, she could not make that choice to give some of that money to her kids. It's not possible. Once we do a rollover of an IRA, 401k, a qualified annuity, anything like that, once that's done, she can't choose to have some of it go to her kids unless we're just going to pay all the taxes. She could do it, but now we're going to pay all the taxes at the highest tax bracket in order to give the money to the kids. Well, that's not the purpose of it. The whole purpose of it was it to go from grandpa to the grandkids directly, bypass the daughter, and it's her choice. That's not how grandpa set it up, but she has that choice of making it saying, I don't want this money. I want to go to my kids. And by the way, when I give it to my kids, we're going to get to keep more, way more of the money. Difference between keeping somewhere in period between 100 and 90% versus keeping 60% of the money and having 40% of the money go into the government. So the difference in that, me saying, stop, don't do it. Let's look at this and decide what we want to do is, you know, let's say, and Let's say it's, I'm going to make it an easy analysis because I'm just using numbers that are easy math. So let's say it was a million dollars. Now I know a lot of people don't have a million dollars, but let's just say it was a million dollars. That means if we had followed through on what the advisor insisted was the only way, $400,000 is going to go to Uncle Sam. Whereas if we do it structurally and have it go to the two grandkids, it's possible that they could pay between zero and 10%. So between zero and $100,000 in taxes on that million dollars. That's that's game changing. That's life changing. And, 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 and we would have, we almost, we were probably a day away from not being able to have that option because they didn't get proper advice. So that's why Having a lawyer involved, having, you know, I don't sell financial products. I'm not going to try to get financial dollars under management, but taking a second and saying, okay, is there any urgency that this has to be done by the end of the year? No. The only thing we have to do by the end of the year is take the required minimum distribution. So this is a big issue that could save a ton of money and and make a, a huge life-changing difference to your family. Okay. Um, do you recommend that in most cases that families work with a qualified, experienced lawyer to help with the settlement of the estate? I do. And the main reason is because almost every client that I meet with has never done this before. Yes. So, you know, if they opted not to work with an attorney, it's usually because they're trying to save time or money. And by the time they get through to the end, um, I think they've gotten the opposite result they're going for. Mm -hmm. So having not ever been through the process before, um, I definitely recommend to avoid the liability to actually save time and money. It, it would be best to just have a qualified attorney in your corner. That's one of the things I like about a lot of the work that we do. A lot of the work that we do um, 
our legal fee is uh, actually ends up saving money. In your case, for the work that you do, I know you do more than this, but this part of your work uh, dealing with the um, settling the estate after death, often it's going to save more money than whatever cost of the legal fee, but also potentially save families, save relationships, um, make it so that people aren't um, angry at each other for the next 40 years. And that's one of the things I appreciate most about the work that we do is much of the work that we do. Well, uh, we're not going to say that we're going to be the low cost, you know, attorney. That's not what we do. But we're going to, the vast, vast majority of time, whatever charge we have, you're going to find the savings elsewhere, either in family harmony or actual savings of what would have been you know potentially lost had had we had you not known the nuances of this. Um, if you follow this podcast and you heard one of my recent podcasts that we were talking about life care planning with Danielle, one of the social workers in our office, I had talked about the way I was raised. And the way I was raised was self-sufficient. You do everything for yourself. We don't need no darn experts, no darn foreigners, no darn then foreigners. That wasn't the right word, but no darn, you know, uh, people at offices wearing ties and suits to, to do this. We can do it ourselves. And so, for example, uh, my dad insisted that I change my own oil. <laughs> And I did for many years, even after I was a professional and, and you know, the cost of changing oil wasn't that uh, harmful to me. I'd get a Saturday, get under the car, scrape up my knuckles, have bloody knuckles, spend four hours doing it, or I can wait in line at 10 minutes at the quick change oil and it's done and probably done better and, you know, more securely and uh, changing brakes. You know, very few people change their own brakes. My dad said, you know, we're not paying somebody to change your brakes. I'm going to show you how to change your brakes. And we did. And for years I did it. And I'd spend for brakes often, I'd spend a whole day uh, changing the brakes. And I realized that sometimes it's better to have the experts. And this is one of those things that uh, I'm not going to become an expert at changing brakes. I can do it. I'm not going to be an expert. I'm not going to be an expert at uh, doing oil changes and doing them efficiently. I can do it, but I'm not going to be an expert. They're going to know nuances because they do it a thousand times a day. And so um, the thing is, uh, that's where I think most people don't realize the nuances that are involved in dealing with IRAs and distributing those, dealing with life insurance proceeds sometimes, um, settling the estate with regard to the house. And so for, you know, relatively small cost of our legal fees and, and the time associated with it, typically the biggest savings that you have is time because we're going to, you're not going to have to stumble around in the dark. We're going to tell you exactly what needs to be done to accomplish your goals. Well, thank you so much, Melissa. I think this is very helpful for folks. I hope you found it helpful. Do you have any final tips that you want to give folks with regard to uh, when they have a family member pass away? I do. Um, I just want to say that, you know, to remember that settling the estate portion is a process and it's going to take time. There are a lot of steps. And one of the things I find most gratifying in my job is when my client emails me and says, thank you so much. You have no idea how much it is meant to have you in my corner. And I've stood in between them and the bank when the bank is asking strange questions or them in the title company or them in the insurance company. But a lot of times, and most importantly, between them and their family that are confused. And 
you know, solving little tiffs that the siblings get into and things of that sort. So they should it they should always think about how important it is to have an advocate in their corner helping them get through that process. Very good. Thanks again. Uh, so uh, hopefully you found this educational and interesting. Uh, we have some really great topics coming up, some uh, some really national experts that we're going to have. Uh, we're, we're likely to have a one of the top lawyers uh, soon that uh, deals with um, defibrillator matters. So um, there's a lot of cases that we hear about where um, having a defibrillator and somebody trained on that saves people's lives. And he's going to talk a little bit about that. So we have a lot of great topics coming up. Please come back. I'm Bob Nanner. I'm a certified elder law attorney here in Michigan. And uh, thank you for listening to Advice from Your Advocates. Thanks for listening. To learn more, visit mannerlawgroup.com.